Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, here I go again. In today's No Restraint Podcast... There's just so many things I need to talk about, some of them completely absurd, some of them really concerning, and one of the subjects kind of hopeful, which is different from my No Restraint podcast. But I'm going to lead with the category of extremely absurd. And believe me, it's not because I can't make the case for censorship of Raoul Dahl's books, but it's because I can't make this case. And that's what makes it so fascinating. Apparently, they have decided, because of the sensitivity of their readers, to make hundreds of edits to the Raoul Dahl classic children's books, the same thing that they've uh, tried to do to other children's books. Nobody can hop on pop anymore because Dr. Seuss is just an outrageous person, even though he's been dead for years. One thing that Raoul Dahl and Dr. Seuss had in common, though, is they were both notorious anti-Semites. But you see, that never stopped publishers in the past, and it never forced publishers to either reword their books, including some that had some very anti-Semitic comments in them, and it never required them to take the books off the shelves. All of a sudden, though, the sensitivity of things like fat shaming seemed to take precedence. Really what this is, is blatant McCarthyism. Had tip Teresa Monroe Hamilton. People who have worked with theater companies, as I have in the past, call the sanitization of Dahl's works a form of this woke culture, which seeks to reinterpret everything. Salman Rushdie paid a heavy price for free speech himself. He was stabbed and he lost the sight in one eye for defending free speech and attacking radical Islam in New York just last year. He called the edits to the children's books absurd censorship. Puffin, who is the publisher of the books, has employed Inclusive Minds, a collective of progressive editors who have instituted politically correct changes such as no longer referring to Augustus Gloop in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as fact. They have changed the genders of other characters, and words such as mad and crazy have been removed. I really do believe these books are of their time, and they should be left alone. Raoul Dahl was a satirist, apart from anything else. It's disgraceful. It's this kind of form of McCarthyism, this woke culture, which is absolutely wanting to reinterpret everything and redesign and say, oh, oh, that didn't exist. Well, it did exist. 
we have to acknowledge our history. Dr. Seuss's books were also cleansed in this manner. People are now looking to hoard original copies of Dahl's books, just as they have done with Dr. Seuss. Critics correctly point out that this wholesale censorship prevents authors from portraying the world as it really is. And there are many people out there who prefer the original books and will keep them and hand them down to their children. I read Raoul Dahl books to my children. I read Dr. Seuss books to my children. And here's my dirty little secret. I'm still reading them to my grandchildren. I just can't let my children know. Don't deny it, but it's kind of like plausibility denial. Now, Salman Rushdie denounced the censorship of these children's books by Raoul Dahl. You see, Rushdie was forced to live in hiding for years after Iran's Grand Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini issued a fatwa back in 1989 calling for his death because of the alleged blasphemy in his novel, The Satanic Verses. Look, Raoul Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. Puffin Books and the Dahl Estate should be ashamed. Pen America, which is a community of approximately 7,500 writers that advocates for freedom of expression, said it was alarmed by the changes to Dahl's books. If we start down the path of trying to correct for perceived slights, instead of allowing readers to receive and react to books as written, we risk distorting the work of great authors and clouding the essential lens that literature offers us on society. If we start down this path, I don't know where it's going to end. The editors at Puffin should be ashamed of the botched surgery they carried out on some of the finest children's literature in Britain. As for me, I'll be carefully stowing away my old original copies of Raoul Dahl's stories so that one day my grandchildren's children can enjoy them in their full, nasty, colorful glory. A British journalist by the name of Bell Mooney had an even harsher take on the censorship of Dahl's books. The fairy tales I read as a child were a world of terror. Those collections by Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm still sit on my shelves next to volumes of European and world folk tales and Greek myths. They all fed my imagination, enthralling me with lessons about the darkness that is at the heart of existence. No children's story Raoul Dahl ever concocted could match those beloved tales for cruel old witches, rapacious kings, sex-mad princess, evil dwarfs, trolls, and of course, pretty virginal victims who would inevitably be abandoned by adults, mistreated by wicked stepmothers, imprisoned, carried off on horses, kissed without giving consent, of course, threatened with cannibalism, made to marry men they didn't know, and so on and so on. How thrilling. The sensitivity readers, who are the ones who are responsible for destroying Dahl's books that millions of people love, Raoul Dahl's trademark sharpness has been blunted. His language changed to suit modern sensitivities about gender and race and weight and violence and mental health. The cloud men in James and the Giant Peach are now the cloud people. Tractors in Fantastic Mr. Fox are not allowed to be black for fear that it's racist. And a character isn't allowed to turn white. They have to turn quite pale. 
So it makes me incandescent to see how today's young readers are being patronized and shortchanged by adults who should know better. I pity modern authors who struggle against the rising tide of puritanism and protectionism that has swept through publishing. Nobody is safe, not even David Walliams, who has been criticized for the earthy character descriptions in his novels. She went on to eviscerate wokeism quite nicely as well. The Oompa Loompas are gender neutral. Augustus Gloop is no longer fat. Miss Trunchbull no longer has a horsey face, just a face. Mrs. Twitz no longer gleefully, fearfully ugly. Puffin has censored the Raoul Dahl's novels. I agree with Salman Rushdie and actor Brian Cox that it's absurd wokeship. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. It seems that the teachers and librarians and some parents who have slurped the woke Kool-Aid so avidly they've lost all reason are quite happy for toddlers to be offered books which feed them trans propaganda. They don't mind older kids being subject to horrifically explicit sex education which suggests that sadomasochism can be a fun part of sex. None of this is remotely funny. And nobody should turn away from what is happening to our culture. Puffin's arrogant censorship of Dahl's acerbic, deliberately shocking prose is just another example of an insidious takeover of our heritage. Make no mistake, there really is a serious culture war going on. That it isn't a fantasy dreamt up by conservative journalists and politicians to attack liberal values or whatever terms the censors might use to justify their shocking arrogance. It's not made up by such writers as Salman Rushdie, who tweeted, Raoul Dahl was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. Puffin Books and the Dahl Estate should be ashamed of themselves. Or children's authors like the brilliant Anthony Horowitz, who has fought his own battles with sensitivity readers and warns that moral policing of literature is extremely dangerous. The whole thinking is so paradoxically stupid. The latest example of the appalling stranglehold that workery, wokery, political correctness as it used to be called, now has on our society must take us beyond weary smiles and sighs. The issue affects every one of us. Most important of all, it denies to children the right to be shocked, to be scared, to laugh at the wrong things, and to make up their own minds about the world. For their sake, we have to shout, enough! What gives these censors, who also find Shakespeare and many other writers greater than Raoul Dahl's problematic, any right to tamper with our cultural heritage? This serious backlash is overdue. How about refusing to buy any book published by Puffin. After that, I'll meet you on the barricades to hurl their paltry, rewritten efforts at the enemy, waking them up with a vengeance. 
the Raoul Dahl Story Company, which controls the rights to the books, issued a press release saying that it worked with Puffin to review the text because it wanted to ensure that Dahl's wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today. Any changes made to the books, they said, were small and carefully considered. I don't believe that for one second, and neither should you. Which is why one of the other stories I wanted to talk about is actually happening. And that story is what's going on at Asbury. That's right, the Asbury Revival. Because I think all of these things are actually tied together. It's pretty similar to what happened at Asbury University in 1970. So let me give you uh, my take, along with Vivian Becker's take and a handful of other writers who I've been reading, Olivia Rheingold, and why we believe that students in Kentucky have been praying for 250 hours. Well, I think it has a lot to do with this woke culture that has literally crippled them and insisted that they're not allowed to even have faith, never mind act in public on their faith. For the last couple of years, even though this Gracie Turner has been going to this Christian college, Asbury, she kept a secret. And that secret was she basically had lost her faith. You see, she had watched her cancer-ravaged great-grandmother die a terrible death. And then she saw her family fall apart. And one fight actually drove her to call the police on one of her own relatives. I just remember thinking, why is this happening? How could this be happening? And my first thought, or the first person I thought to blame, was God. Turner's a 21-year-old film major who said, I would lay in bed sometimes and just pray to God like it would be really nice if I didn't wake up tomorrow. When she got to Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, she was required to go to chapel three times a week for college credit. But she never believed God would fix anything, since life only seemed to be getting harder between the anxiety, depression, and a back injury that brought her to a breaking point. But then last week, something changed. She woke up and spontaneously blurted an idea to her roommate. What if instead of doing homework, we went to chapel today? She had heard a revival had sprung forth a few days earlier there, and it hadn't stopped. When she opened the doors, the same chapel that had never spoken to her before suddenly seemed alive. The pews were packed with more than a thousand people, including many of her classmates, weeping and swaying with their eyes closed to nothing but an acoustic guitar and each other's voices. Suddenly, Gracie no longer felt any pain. I just slumped down, she said. It was the first time in a long time where I could finally just rest because I felt like I was at peace, like I was protected. I felt like it was God telling me, this is what you've been missing. And for the past two weeks, tens of thousands of visitors have poured into that Kentucky chapel to experience what Gracie Turner felt that day. On Saturday alone, according to a university spokesperson, the crowd numbered between 15 and 20,000. Some people are driving overnight from states like South Carolina and Oklahoma. Others are flying in from Canada and Singapore to wait in line for hours, sometimes in the rain or snow, just to stand next to people they share nothing in common with 
except for a single conviction. God is visiting a two-stoplight town in Kentucky. Inside, it sounds like a concert, I've been told, but feels more like a campfire. Voices rise and fall in unison to soft guitar and piano music, and everyone knows the words. Holy Spirit, come rest on us. You're the only one. In between the songs and prepared sermons, pastors hand the mics over to teenagers who flood up to the altar to share stories of broken hearts and anxiety, and the crowd claps at every tale of being saved from torn ligaments, drug addictions, crisis of faith. It all started on Wednesday, February 8th, when Zach Meerkrebs, a volunteer soccer coach who had addressed the student body only twice before, gave an improvised sermon about love. Some of you guys have experienced radically poor love. A tattooed 32-year-old with a penchant for kombucha told the crowd, some of you guys have experienced that love in the church. Maybe it's not violent. Maybe it's not molestation. It's not taken advantage of, but it feels like someone has pulled a fast one on you. Then he uttered the invitation that ignited a movement. If you need to hear the voice of God, the Father in heaven who will never love you that way, that is perfect in love, gentle and kind, you come up here and experience his love. Don't waste this opportunity. In a final kind of corny throwaway line, he said, I pray that this sits on you guys like an itchy sweater and you gotta itch, you gotta take care of it. Mir Kreeb said he was certain that he had totally whiffed the sermon and immediately got off stage and texted his wife, latest stinker, I'll be home soon. But students were moved by his message and they lingered. At first, he said, it was just 18 of them who stayed back to pray while everybody else headed to class. But then students began texting each other, you need to come back to chapel. Something is happening. Every day, more students came, praying and singing around the clock, taking shifts between classes and mealtimes, and even at bedtime, to the point the chapel never emptied. Soon reports of similar round-the-clock prayer sessions were popping up at other college campuses, including Lee University in Tennessee, Cedarville University in Ohio, and Samford University in Alabama. Some Asbury students said they grew up praying for a revival, meaning a resurgence of faith that spreads, usually at a community level, but occasionally throughout the entire nation. Those students believe that dream is now becoming reality among the generation marked by its lack of faith in anything. Gen Z is the most likely generation yet to say they don't believe in God. They are also the least religiously affiliated and the least likely to attend church. Meantime, their rates of depression and anxiety are soaring. The Centers for Disease Control recently published a report stating that almost 60% of female students experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness during the past year, and nearly 25% made a suicide plan. Social media has amplified much of this young generation's ennui. But over the last couple of days, it has also been used to promote the religious revival at Asbury, where reports first hit TikTok, then Twitter, then Facebook, and eventually Tucker Carlson on Fox News, who called the scenes remarkable. 
Though Asbury recently started to contain the revival overnight, it hasn't stemmed the tide. Lydia Nowak, age 20, says it's true what they say about her generation. She said she's hardly met any believers of her age, and she journeyed to Asbury from North Carolina, where she's a junior at Appalachian State University, to find people like her. I have hardly seen any other people who just actually love Jesus and worship and pray, she said. Then about Asbury, this is huge to see. This is not the first time Wilmore has combusted with prayer. The university website lists eight prior revivals, with the largest cresting in 1970, when other college campuses were erupting with anti-war fervor and violent clashes with police. Revivals were at their height in 18th century America, when evangelist preachers cast aside stuffy ceremonies to spread the Holy Spirit among crowds in fields or city streets. In more modern times, Colleges like Wheaton in Illinois in 1950, rather than churches, have been the center of revivals. Leonard Fitch attended the 1970 revival at Asbury and says he's been praying for another big one here ever since. I have a granddaughter who graduated from Asbury, and her brother went to a secular school in Virginia. Fitch, who's 82 years old and an Asbury graduate and local grocery store owner, said she's had a wonderful life and he committed suicide. And that, to me, says it all. At 18, Ava Miller, an Asbury freshman, has also been praying for a revival, knowing how much her friends are struggling with their mental health. I can see and feel the heaviness of the people around me, says Ava, who grew up in Wilmore. You just feel that heaviness. As a believer, I've gotten to experience the freedom of getting to live in the hope and I think hope is something that extinguishes that fire of darkness. The past few years have felt extra dark. After two years of COVID disruptions and a life moved online even more than usual, there's just a lack of hope that seems to have been struck up with the younger generations. It just creates this environment that seems kind of desolate. Hammond says he's used to seeing his peers pull out their phones at mandatory chapel services, and to see the total opposite of that happening right now is really, really cool. Back in the chapel, students and now visitors, dudes in cowboy boots and muddy jeans, a man in the back with an oxygen tank, a woman breastfeeding under a scarf, they seem to be discovering a new connection, which is actually a very old one that previous generations felt more easily in the absence of today's technology. Maybe we're seeing a great awakening of 18 to 25-year-olds, says Garrett English, who drove all the way from Clemson University in South Carolina to witness the scene for himself. This right here, this is amazing. We're seeing college-age students fighting for other college students' faith. Clyde Van Wirth, 68, is outside in the moonlight, journaling about the young people inside who now carry the torch he's worked hard to protect. Last year, Van Wirth gave up his post as a missionary in Vietnam after a decade there. Now he's a volunteer usher at the Asbury Chapel. He sips coffee from a styrofoam cup before starting another shift. We really need to be blessing these young people and holding the door open for them. When I notice he's holding back tears, I ask him why. He says, seeing this next generation come to life does my heart good. Well, you can imagine 
how he feels. But is God really moving through the revival at Asbury? Over 100 people falling at the altar on Wednesday, February 8th, and now turned into a Holy Spirit outpouring? It doesn't show any signs of stopping, although the word came down today that the college is going to terminate it. The 2023 revival that's presently occurring is not the first revival to have happened in this location, but it is probably one of the most important because we are now a nation that has moved away from its Christian Judeo roots. And rather than being persuaded by intense feelings of emotions, this revival is actually more peaceful and is marked by gentle worship, prayer, and meditation, reflection upon the Bible, and healing. There have also been remarkable numbers of personal testimonies during this revival in which people have been sharing what God has done for them. This is an amazing phenomenon, and it's happening right now. Many churches and individuals have been praying for revival. I know my church and my pastor, who is my husband, we've been praying for revival for five years consistently. We've participated in other churches' efforts for revival. And it's amazing that the children shall lead. A great number of people are not just coming to the revival and wanting to stay there, but a lot of people are claiming that they believe this revival is part of the Holy Spirit's outpouring. Now, of course, since this is a Christian university, the majority of the attendees are already believers. However, this revival is helping them to refocus on Christ. Through days upon days of praying and worship and reading scripture, the individuals involved are not planning to stop doing that anytime soon, whether it'll be done formally or in the chapel or in their rooms. The people within Asbury University are deeply moved by what is happening in their midst and the revival that is happening before their eyes. You see, revival is when a person, an individual, refocuses their eyes and their hearts and their minds on Jesus. Maybe they had lost sight or have become stagnant in their faith. Yet through revival, the believer once again has the desire to grow in their knowledge of God and to spend more time with him. A deep love within the heart of the believer is awakened when revival happens, as is the case for the individuals at Asbury University. They have a new love for God and a deep desire to grow closer to him. Revivals are important for the church because we have all at times become dormant in our faith. We get used to the truths contained in the Bible and they don't have a huge impact on us anymore. Maybe we read something in the Bible, yet through our stagnant faith, we don't even consider what it says. Or maybe we aren't even picking up our Bible anymore. Growing stagnant in our faith is terrible because we start losing focus on the Lord. The more we lose focus on the Lord, the more prone we will be to falling into sin. And it's vital that we rediscover the love we have for God as we did the time when we accepted him as our savior. As we can see from the individuals at Asbury University, this revival has radically changed them. Maybe they too were once stagnant in their faith, yet this revival has once again filled their hearts with the joy and a deep desire to know the Savior better. 
Many individuals may look at this event and try to turn it into something it's not. There are multiple revivals that happened in the past to which many were seen as unbiblical. Revivals in and of themselves are not unbiblical. A revival is in a way reliving an experience for the second time the great joy that comes with salvation. From what we can observe from the Asbury University revival, there is nothing unbiblical about it. Rather, these are believers who are having revivals in their own faith. The revival is so strong that these individuals don't want to leave the Hughes Auditorium at Wilmore, Kentucky, as this is their place of worship. They would prefer to stay together in worship, meditating on scripture and talking with God through prayer. Their love for God far outweighs any other commitment they have to their career, their school, or other relationships. As we're being shown, you can see God when he's at work, and he's bringing back the children to him. While believers are the ones who pray, God is the one who ultimately brings about the revival. Be intentional to pray, but also be patient. Revivals can take some time to come into being, yet when we are consistently praying, there is nothing that is impossible for God. The revival at Arsbury University is a marvelous thing that happened in Kentucky. It caused hundreds of people to have spiritual reawakenings, but you need to create a revival in your own heart, in your own church, and in your own community. I believe it's the only thing that will save us. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.